every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday, the 6th of February. It's the final week of the year of the rabbit, and we welcome the year of the wood dragon on Saturday. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, former U.S. President Donald Trump has said he would impose more tariffs on Chinese goods if he won the U.S. presidential election in November. In an interview with Fox News, he said the tariffs could be in excess of 60%. He said in the interview on Sunday, I'm not looking to hurt China. I want to get along with China, but they've really taken advantage of our country. And he rejected criticism that the moves would start a trade war, saying that what he did, that he did great with China with everything during his presidency. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell vowed in an interview aired Sunday that the US central bank will proceed carefully with interest rate cuts this year and likely will move at a considerably slower pace than the market expects. Mr Powell expressed confidence in the economy and said we can approach the question of when to begin to reduce interest rates carefully. 14 Chinese regions have been told by the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology to stabilise manufacturing and ensure a good start to the Year of the Dragon as the sector struggles in the run-up to the Lunar New Year holiday. Officials want a good start to the new year as concerns mount over the pace of the economic recovery. And China pledged to stabilise financial markets after shares sank to a five-year low last week. However, policymakers offered no specifics on how they plan to bring an end to the sell-off that has wiped out around 7 trillion US dollars from the market value of Chinese and Hong Kong equities since a peak reached in 2021. On Sunday, the China Securities Regulatory Commission vowed to prevent abnormal fluctuations, saying it would guide more medium and long-term funds into the market and crack down on illegal activities. And China's also tightening trading restrictions on domestic institutional investors as well as some offshore funds. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Frederick Chu, Managing Director of Magnum Research, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. If you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street's Monday, US stocks sank following the release of positive services PMI data and after Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell pushed back against hopes for rapid interest rate cuts in an interview on CBS's 60 Minutes on Sunday. The S&P 500 slipped a third of a percent to close at 4,943. The index hit a record high last week, boosted by big tech stocks. The Nasdaq Composite edged out 0.2% to end at 15,598. And the S&P 500 and Nasdaq came off session lows as Nvidia led gains in the chipmakers. The Dow dropped 274 points, that's 0.7%, to settle at 38,380, having been down more than 430 points at its low of the day. Benchmark 10-year Treasury yields rose 14 basis points to 4.17%, and that extends their two-day gains to 30 basis points now, and triggering sharp selling pressure for sovereign bonds worldwide. Two-year Treasury yields rose 10 basis points to a one-month high of 4.48%. 
The US dollar index extended gains to 0.7%, trading at 104.5 on Monday. That's the highest level since mid-November, after new data added to evidence that interest rates will not be lowered as soon as previously anticipated. The dollar was 0.2% firmer against the yen at 148 and two-thirds of a yen per dollar. The offshore yuan depreciated past 7.22 per dollar, hitting its lowest levels in nearly three weeks as the dollar rallied. Gold slipped to one-week lows, ending the day 0.7% lower at $2,024 an ounce. And oil prices were steady. Brent crude futures settled unchanged at $77.33 a barrel. Chinese stocks posted more wild swings on Monday. The CSI 300 rose 0.7% for the day to 3200 after falling as much as 2.1% earlier on Monday to a five-year low. However, the index is down almost 7% for the year. Gauges of small cap shares closed deep in the red. The CSI 1000 index of small companies slumped as much as 8.7% early on Monday before closing down 6.2%, and that's the seventh consecutive losing session. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index edged down 24 points, or 0.2%, to 15,510. It was the second day of losses, coming after Jerome Powell tempered expectations of rate cuts. The Hang Seng Index has dropped 9% this year so far, after four consecutive years of losses, and it makes it the worst-performing equity benchmark in the world in 2024. It does look like we're going to get a small rebound in Hong Kong stocks at the open. Futures markets pointing to a gain of about 45 points. The index should start trading around 15,555. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Tuesday morning guests. We have with us Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning, Mark. Good morning, everyone. And also with us, Frederick Chu, Managing Director at Magnum Research here in Hong Kong. Morning, Frederick. Good morning, gentlemen. And over in Washington, D.C., we have our U.S. economics correspondent, Barry Wood. And it is traditional on a Tuesday morning that we kick off with a weather forecast. (laughs) Yes, it is cold. It is dark. But the days are getting longer. So um, (laughs) I would give you a forecast for the week in Washington of mild temperatures, milder. Snow is completely gone. Things are looking a little bit up. It's almost worth flying over there, isn't it? <laughs> now, in Washington, US, former US President Donald Trump has said he would impose more tariffs on Chinese goods if he wins the presidential election in November. In an interview with Fox News, he said the tariffs could be in excess of 60%. We have to do it, he said in the interview on Sunday. You know, obviously, I'm not looking to hurt China, he said. I want to get along with China. I think they're great, but they've really taken advantage of our country. And Mr. Trump rejected criticism that the moves would start a trade war, saying that he did great with China with everything during his presidency. Um, Barry, I don't know if you saw this. I mean, he's he's, um, raised flags over a general import tariff before of 10%, but 60% at least on Chinese goods. Is is he serious? Are Are you shocked to hear this? Yes. And yes, I think he's serious, but I don't think it's going to happen. Even if he were elected, I don't think that's going to happen because 60 percent means essentially no imports from China. Mm. I mean, you just can't have that kind of tariff and have a price that is competitive. Now, there are some goods that no doubt would be, uh, but they would cost so much and it would hurt the American consumer. 
but he's really, um, we'd almost forgotten how Donald Trump can say, yes, but, and the but is, oh, I like Xi Jinping. We get along famously and uh, we'll, we'll be fine. But we have to do this. We have no choice. Well, I think that um, his popularity with the business community would vanish if he were to go in that direction. So I think it will be taken as a warning. It will be taken as something that is not going to happen. But he is, after all, by his own words, the tariff man. He likes them. So the 20 percent that he leveraged when he was president, they're still in effect, most of them. And, uh, you know, this we're just not used to hearing this kind of rhetoric. And here it is once again. Do we have to start listening to him more now as we get closer and closer to the election? I'm afraid so. I keep talking to Democrats who say, look, I think Trump is going to win. I can't really believe that they're saying that, but people are saying it. I think it has a lot to do with the lack of popularity and the alleged problems physically and mentally of the current president. But uh, I think that... Um, so much can happen, right, Mark, before we get to November? Right, but... right. I, I think he could he could, definitely could <laughs> win. I'm not so sure that he will win, but we don't even know who's going to be running in the end, as you've said many times before, Barry, because uh, it's a very fluid situation. Is that a nice way to put it? <laughs> it is. Uh, on the tariffs, as it happens last night in my class at Chinese University, the topic was trade wars, which was very appropriate for the subject, and, I, and my my uh, my students are mainly from China, and the the issue is this: not only government reaction, it's their reaction to the, these kind of statements. Whether, as Barry says, it's really going to happen, or to what extent, it just sends the wrong signals, and it just makes them double down mm -hmm. on what they were doing anyway. And you know, supported, I think, generally by by you know, these are pretty intelligent people who you know who are pretty. Uh, pretty uh, wide ranging in their viewpoints. But at the same time, this really hardens them to some extent. And of course, you put out some of the numbers already, uh, Peter, on what the impact was. As you mentioned, uh, the conservative think tank talked about the previous impact of almost $200 billion on that's cost Americans almost $200 billion and 245,000 jobs. I don't know if those figures are accurate, but they probably aren't far off. And that's who it hurts. So in addition to the business community, American consumers eventually might get it that this is not particularly good for them. Mm -hmm. Frederick, what, what do you make of this? I mean, the U.S. is sort of destroying its own market for Chinese goods, isn't it? I mean, the U.S. is no longer China's biggest export market now. It's been overtaken by Mexico and Canada. Um, and at this rate, it'll be overtaken by several more. Yeah, I think this is the least that the uh, Chinese government want to see. I think they are ready for... Uh, Two things. Uh, number one, it's Donald Trump could could win uh, the uh, upcoming election, and second of all, if he wins, then he will uh, very likely continue what he did uh, in his previous, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, regime. Uh, so, which means that the uh, the U.S. tension, the U.S.-China tension, is going to be uh, bring back on, and I think China it's <clears throat> getting ready for uh, to to tackle that if. It hurts the export. Furthermore, if it hurts the supply chain on on, on the tax and etc., 
uh, one of the biggest self protection for uh, for the Chinese government is to uh, do the uh, inner circulation. I mean, the you know the domestic demand driven uh, type of economy. If you imagine the goods and services produced and be you know digest in 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 domestic China that could still sustain for you know for uh, you know a longer period of time. But the thing is, the uh, the uh, consumer confidence in China is so low at the moment. Uh, and when you look at capital markets, as as you can see, uh, you know the the governments is still capable of you know supporting capital markets, uh, you know running by itself. So if, unless you close up everything and try to circulate everything on your own, uh, you know that will serve as a as a interim solution. I think that's in the mind of the uh, of the Chinese government. It's going to be tough, though, isn't it? Because there's certain sectors now, like electric vehicles, like batteries, where there's massive overcapacity, um, and the domestic economy can't absorb um, all of that manufacturing capacity. So they need to export it to overseas markets. That's right. I think uh, it's across all sectors, and um, you know the the authorities dealing with them one by one. Uh, first, first one to come in obviously is the real estate. So the, the crackdown, you know, the, the problem uh, with the real estate developers now they come up with a white list that they are willing to fund the on, on the project basis uh, for for those uh, developers. Now, th- those are not really for the developers, but more for the consumers, for the uh, for the home buyers. Um, so the second the second sector come up could be you know the the EVs uh, as you see the price wars are, are coming in pretty pretty massively. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I think it's across the board that that's a, that's a more structural problem for for, for China at the moment. Mm-hmm. A, a couple points, Peter, in reaction. I mean, actually agree, and I think good points. The other problem is, of course, the barriers to exports like EVs in, in the United States and elsewhere. Um, there was just a piece done by Bloomberg about a month ago, talking about tariffs under the Biden administration, as mentioned. They're almost as bad as in the previous administration, and there doesn't seem to be any indication that they're going to be. Uh, Barry might disagree that they're going to be. They're going to be loosened. And what this means, in in effect, for companies, for example, they're scrambling to figure out how to move some of their production from China to other places that don't have the same barriers, like Vietnam or others who can who can export directly to the U.S. or Mexico or some other places. And the the other accompanying uh, development is, of course, Chinese suppliers, medium-sized firms in most cases, are moving with a lot of these multinational companies to Vietnam or to Mexico. Now, how that affects the overall Chinese economy, I don't know. It's good for them, but that means they they reduce or or maybe end a lot of their production in China itself. Mm. I would take the uh, position that Mr. Trump's statement uh, will convey clearly to the Chinese leadership that they need to accommodate their largest export market. And, you know, trade was down between the two countries, 13 or Chinese exports to the States down 13% last year. And this is a clear warning, you know, that all the tension that existed began with the Trump administration has continued largely in the current administration. China has to be more accommodating to get this trade deficit that the United States has with China down to a more manageable level. Now, on the other hand, 
all the things that were set in motion by Janet Yellen and by the Xi Biden meeting in November are coming to pass. I mean, here is the third meeting of a working group in China that was set up. This is positive. So it's not all bad news. But uh, clearly, uh, if the Chinese leadership thought that Mr. Trump was out of the picture, I think they'll think again. Mm -hmm. but, but Barry, I just and I agree with you, of course. And I think there might I hope there is a move toward greater accommodation. And we've seen it in some of the uh, greater interaction between U.S. and Chinese government. But the one area where it's not so clear is in trade that, you know, they weren't it wasn't really discussed between she and Biden. Um, our secretary for commerce has made some pretty strong statements uh, in the past uh, past month or so that were were not very favorable. Our, the USTR is is uh, is taking a, a pretty hard line as well. So it's yes, that's the right. area where I don't think we've we've made we've made much change. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, from the Chinese side, they've also taken some measures that that aren't so helpful either, especially in, in rare earths and other areas like that, which are pretty key to a lot of things that everyone manufactures. But I agree with you. There really has to be, I think, more focus on this area. And I hope both governments do that. Frederick, do you think President Xi Jinping, does he want to make any accommodation to accommodate export markets in the US and, and Europe? Because you sort of get the feeling that this industrial model is so embedded in the system, in Chinese economic policy, that they can't wean themselves off of it. And we saw that, didn't we, when we had the meeting with the EU uh, leaders and, and President Xi in Beijing at the end of last year. They really got nowhere. It was a standoff. Uh, Beijing wasn't prepared to uh, abandon its industrial policy um, and, and the EU wasn't prepared to back down um, on making sure that it carried on with its investigations into dumping and subsidies and so on. Yeah, I think um, that you know, in in the in, in the mindset of uh, of the uh, you know the the, the Chinese uh, government, U.S. it's always um, to be the biggest partner uh, in you know all senses in all areas. Um, so that's why I see you know for the the previous or current uh, U.S. administration, um, it, it, you know. The Chinese government basically taking a more passive way in dealing with all these uh, tensions. Like you, they, they have they have come back with, uh, you know, some, some sort of uh, barriers or, or sanctions. But it's just, it's just the response uh, for so many times, so many things that the U.S. Uh, government has done. Um, so you know, I think as a hatch, as what the Chinese could do is to go to you know some other parts of the world to to look for. Uh, outsource, look for um, buyers. Uh, for instance, in the Middle East, uh, look for new markets, new, 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 uh, new, 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 new demands. Uh, go down to Vietnam and Southeast Asia uh, along the along the Belt and Road, just to looking for uh, you know additional outsource that could potentially uh, get around with uh, with the uh, with the uh, with the barriers. Barry, what has happened to the Republican Party? I mean, the, the, the Republican Party, it used to be the party of free trade, low taxes, uh, no tariffs. I mean, that was the party of Ronald Reagan, wasn't it? I mean, it's almost as if they've sold everything that the Republican Party used to stand for in, in order to make sure that, that Donald Trump is elected. 
I wouldn't fully agree with that. I think that uh, the Republicans indeed are split. There's no doubt about that. In fact, they're probably split more than two ways. But um, they want to win. Mm. And Nikki Haley is playing a successful hand, it seems to me. They wanted her two weeks ago to drop out. She didn't. Now, I think she's playing the card that says Donald Trump cannot win and that this race is not over, despite all the experts saying it is over. So, you know, she's a Republican, after all, Peter, mm. and she probably espouses some of the policies that you're associating with Ronald Reagan. So I wouldn't say that um, they've thrown out all these policies. The big policies, as I see it, and I, I saw it in South Carolina, are, first of all, the border, the open southern border. Secondly, it's crime in the cities and the fact that it's seen to be these sanctuary cities that are causing problems. And then all the regulations that exist. And so, I, you know, as long as poorer people, including some blacks and some Hispanics, are rallying to Donald Trump, over these issues is a sign that the Democrats have not got clear sailing ahead. But as to your initial point about the Republicans, they're split. And we'll see much more of that in the next week because they've got to vote on a Republican and Democratic Senate package that would give aid to Israel, give aid to Ukraine and do something on the southern border. The House Republicans say no way. We'll see who's going to be the stronger faction within the Republicans. We'll see that within seven days. Are there Republicans who just can't bring themselves to vote for Donald Trump? Is there a constituency there that's significant enough of people who call themselves Republican but say, I just can't vote for this guy? Yes, there are. But they're, they're small in number. <laughs> that would be the former uh, senator from, from uh, Utah, yeah. Romney. I yeah. mean, there's no way he could support Trump. And look at the people in Trump's cabinet. Uh, who said the guy cannot possibly um, be trusted with the reins of government again. So, you know, I, I think it's, um, we'll see. Okay. Well, let's move on. The, the China economy, Mark and uh, Frederick, we had some data out um, overnight. The Kaishin Services PMI uh, came in a little bit below um, forecast, although it was expanding, 13th straight month um, of expansion. Now, the composite PMI, which uh, combines the manufacturing and non-manufacturing gauges, was at 52.5 there. China is telling its regions uh, to pull out all the stops to try and make sure that the manufacturing sector gets a good start uh, to the new year, which begins on Saturday. And of course, this is a, a traditional time when lots of factories close down uh, for the holidays. Um, what are your thoughts, Mark, first of all, on where we are um, on, on the economy? Any signs at all uh, that the authorities are getting to grips uh, with this? Or are you on the lines of maybe the US-based Rodian Group, which said yesterday in a report, we've got to get used to China's economy growing at just 3 to 4% in the coming years? Well, I, I think they both could be right to one extent or another. Of course, we don't know. And our forecast for, for, for this, this year, for example, is is sort of the mid four percent or mid to high four percent, which by China by China's historical standards isn't very high, but compared with the rest of the world and the size of the Chinese economy, not so bad. And of course, China is, and government is pulling levers to try to help the property market, try to help the stock market. 
try to avoid consumer spending. And I think it's going to have an impact. It's just still we're in a situation. I'd like to hear Frederick's view on this, too. But from our, our members, not all of them, but many of them, it's still not meeting expectations that they once had, which maybe were unrealistic expectations. And they aren't sure where they're going to find the income in other parts of the world. So China yeah, you, is still really important to these companies, but they can't, they got to find alternatives because it's not going to be quite, even though it's going to be better and maybe maybe a little bit more stable, it's still not going to be quite what they'd hoped. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think uh, if we, if if you know uh, China good enough, uh, you, you probably know the numbers uh, doesn't really uh, reflect the, the, the practical, you know, economic situation all the time. Uh, we, we talk about the um, the consumer, uh, you know, the PMIs looks not that bad, but actually, if you go down to the ground and look at how people spending money, it, it's it's actually uh, way way behind the the, the pre COVID times. Um, I, I've been spending much time in Shenzhen these days, and you know um, the consumption has been restoring. Uh, if, if you go to restaurants, shopping malls, it's full of people. But you know a portion of them coming obviously coming from Hong Kong. Uh, but for the locals, uh, I think first of all, you know about two million um, people from the the the, the outer province uh, in Shenzhen has left and go back to their hometown. Uh, mm. So essentially lowering the labor forces, drive up the labor price. But um, lucky lucky thing is Shenzhen still have, you know, many people. So this is not really a labor shortage that could, uh, you know, drive up uh, the, the cost substantially. Um, the spending habit is changing, even though, you know, people are more willing to spend money out there, you know, um, given, you know, given credit to the to the service level from the from the service sectors is, is improving uh, substantially. Uh, so, you know, people are more willing to to, to go out. But the, the way they spend money, the, the way they go travel to uh, Hong Kong or, or anywhere else in the world, uh, it's not the way. Uh, you know how they how they spend money uh, uh, before COVID. So I think it's 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 quite a long way to go for for, for China really to uh, to to pick up uh, uh, from where they are. Uh, but having said that, I think uh, it's still you know February. We, we haven't we haven't got to a Chinese New Year yet. I think it's, it's still quite early to uh, you know put a very confirmed stance on whether China can meet 5% uh, this year or not, because if, if the state set 5% GDP, it's basically a must-reach. Um, so I think uh, after Chinese New Year, uh, especially before the uh, two sessions uh, in March, we're probably going to see uh, a bit more stimulus coming out, a bit more meaningful stimulus coming out uh, that could really get down to the real economy. Do you think we've got to lower our I- expectations? Three to four percent. We've got to get used to that going forward. Eventually, yes, because you know uh, the the eight eight percent, ten percent. It's never, we're never going to go back. Uh, and uh, like like Mark has said, like three to four uh, percent. It's it's pretty good in the in the global sense. Uh, but for China, you know, it's it's sometimes it's just different. Uh, you know, just looking at the uh, the economic angle. Sorry, Barry. I wanted to ask if I could about uh, Shenzhen and its at least two big employers, um, BYD and Huawei. How are they doing? Uh, BYD is is doing fine, I think. Yeah, so by looking at uh, you know the the sales figures, 
uh, and and the productions is becoming the you know the the, the biggest uh, EV uh, producer in China. And um, talking about the EV market, uh, you go to tier one cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, you will notice the um, the uh, the uh, you know the. The, the usage rate of, of EV is, is quite high. Like at least all the taxis are, are EVs now, mm-hmm. all the buses are EVs now. But if you go to like the inner China or some, you know, more, um, uh, you know, uh, Western part of, of, of China, for instance, uh, the adoption rate is, is still uh, room to grow. So I think the EV market for domestic China, uh, domestic China is, is, is still quite a good piece of uh, of uh, of cake to 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 compete with. That's why you see Xiaomi and all those, you know, new new brands are coming into this competition. Um, uh, Huawei, um, you know, I, I just don't think Huawei has much worry about you know the, the sanctions. Well, maybe in a global sense, yes, they 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 do. But uh, for domestic consumptions, like the new Huawei phone that that they just came out uh, several months ago. It's a it's a really a crack to the market. I think um, you know. It's a, I, I know a friend who's in the semiconductor industry in US. Um, the Huawei used to be one of their biggest clients. He told me like three years ago, before COVID, Huawei has already accumulated enough storage for you know maybe five or six years of of uh, of, uh, of demand of need. So. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's being impacted at the you know at the at the global level, but um, uh, for 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 you know satisfying the domestic uh, uh, demand, I think I think they're more than enough. Mm. How much is the slump in the stock markets that we've been seeing over the last few weeks um, damaging the economy and damaging confidence, consumer confidence in particular? Uh, you mean China? Yes. Uh, the stock market, you know, it's uh, if the government wants to beef up the stock market, they can do it easily overnight. You know, they got cash, they got uh, foreign reserve, they can do it right away. It, just imagine that the the regulators, the market players, uh, you know, the, the brokerage firms, the banks, the asset owners, everything was owned by the state. So they set the rules, they open up the floor and they have the all the players so if you want to if you want to make it up you can make it up overnight if you want to leave it like that you can just just leave it like that so it I, I don't worry about like how the how the stock market is doing but it, it's really the i think the, the number one is the real estate market that's hurting the the, the investors confidence uh secondly the um the uh, performance of the majority of investment products in china last year has been quite disastrous so that means most of people are still out of money uh, with their portfolios so they do not want to engage into you know uh, just just normal listed equities but we do see some risks on uh, in in china like uh, like s- certain of the of the uh, professional investors like high net worth they are more eager to go into the private side of things like uh, you know buying the private equity uh, projects or you know um, uh, private debt those type of investments Mark, is this something your members are focused on, the, the slump in the Chinese market and the impact it's having on business, on consumers overall? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, consumer sentiment is part of it and also also their disposable income, which is still substantial, but the willingness to spend, as Frederick has suggested, is still not there. Now, part of this is, is, a, uh, is a remnant of COVID. 
and the impact that it had on everyone. But it's, the stock market and property market are really key to a lot of people in China, and that's where a lot of their investment is. And until they see light at the end of the tunnel and feel a little more confident of that, plus also a little bit, uh, a little bit, bit more backup on on the safety net, you know, for housing and for health and education. Uh, I think they're going to be reluctant, and this is as it's not always reflected in the numbers, as Frederick says, but it is reflected in in uh, consumer sentiment, even for lower priced items. Mm. You know, it's not the expense; it's you know they just they'll buy less of something. That's that's mm. what's happened. And clearly, investors uh, are very aggrieved about this, aren't they? You just have to look at what happened to the uh, the U.S. embassy in Beijing. Their Weibo um, account, some 53,000 users posted on it over the weekend, won over 300,000 likes, complaining about what was happening to their investment um, and the stock market, because it's one of the few places that's not controlled by the state. So they could freely um, express their grievances. It clearly is top of people's minds at the moment. Well, are they blaming the United States, or is that no, no? It was just it's blaming their own government. Blaming their or, own government, yeah. but it's just that you know, on the United States social media account, you can post freely; it doesn't get scrubbed all your comments. Whereas, uh, if you did it on a government on a lot of other accounts, the the Chinese government would scrub it. So it's one of the few places where you can actually freely post your grievances, of which clearly there were a lot. Of course, Barry, not a problem that you've got in the United States at the moment with markets at all-time highs, almost. It is. It, it is remarkable and uh, unexpected. And certainly Jay Powell is um, a happy guy. Now, he's talking about, he's giving a lot of interviews, isn't he, making it clear uh, that March rate cuts are off the table. I mean, we've spoken about this on the program before, thinking that that was uh, too um, ambitious. But he is spelling it out now for the markets, isn't he? No rate cuts in March and quite possibly not one in May either. Well, he doesn't put it as forthrightly as you do, Peter, but he does say that uh, the evidence would suggest that we're not going to have enough progress that we would cut rates in March. I thought in this interview that was broad, sorry, that was broadcast uh, Sunday evening here is that uh, he made clear that he wants to cut rates in the course of 2024 and that uh, he expects to do so. But as you just said, it's going to come probably mid-year, certainly not in March. And that mm -hmm. might explain why we've had this rather significant stock pullback on Monday. And how on earth can he cut rates at all when, you know, once again, these U.S. job numbers just blow expectations out of the water? 353,000 jobs in January. I mean, we've marbled, Barry, haven't we, several times over the job numbers. This is, I think, the biggest one we've seen for a while. Yes, that's right. And it's, it's happening with inflation holding steady. So you've got 3%. It hasn't gone up. So, yes, the Fed will be data dependent. But as you've just said, with both the job data and the high interest rates, the economy continues to chug along and do very well. So so be it. It's it's um, and that should be reflected in increased popularity for the president. That has not happened as yet. Where are all these jobs coming from? It just seems almost inconceivable that month after month, the US economy can keep creating, well, hundreds of thousands of jobs. Just where are people coming from? I mean, I hear that maybe, you know, there are quite a few people that have several jobs and there's a lot of increase in, in part-time working, but I just can't understand how you find all these people to give jobs to. Well, it's mostly in the service sector. 
and there's so much money. I mean, you anybody can get a job in a restaurant or a supermarket, and those places are doing a very brisk business. I think um, travel is a huge industry. Sorry, and that's doing very well. So yeah, <clears throat> we're not adding a lot of jobs in some types of manufacturing, but there's a lot of government money, talk about industrial policy, we have it here, that's gone into semiconductors. So there's a lot of construction. I think the remarkable thing in, in, in all of this is that high interest rates and a commercial real estate sector that is suffering because you've got downtown areas with office buildings that are unfilled because people are working from home. And yet, next door there's construction going on and there's a housing boom. So it, it's, it's quite counterintuitive, but it's happening all over the country. Are you surprised, Mark, just how little damage these high interest rates have done uh, to the economy? Well, certainly haven't done much damage to the, the U.S. economy. They've probably done more damage to the Hong Kong and the China economy yeah. and, and others yeah, than they have to the U.S. Clear, clearly, to, to a great extent. Yeah, of course, I'm surprised. I think most, most forecasters got it wrong. And, and, you know, eventually, you know, some of them are now saying, well, it's still coming or there's still going to be a, a pullback and maybe there will be. But at this point, we keep getting numbers like you've just described, like Barry just discussed. And uh, the sentiment is still pretty strong. Frederick, what, what could get the Fed to cut rates? Um, I, I think if you look at the like the. Uh, the payroll is definitely very, uh, you know, impressive. Uh, I think, uh, you know, one one factor that we could probably reference to is the uh, the PCE, uh, which stands at two point six at the moment. Um, generally, I think the the interest rate that the the the, the Fed think re reasonable interest rate is, is somewhere at um, the current PCE plus about two hundred basis points. Mm. So, which means that the reasonable rate it's right now given the PCE is two point six, so it should be at four point six or something like that. Uh, which which gives some speculation to the market that um, this year the Fed may cut about one hundred basis points. But I think March, uh, you know, expecting a March cut or May cut could be a bit more um, uh, too too optimistic, to be honest. Um, I think we're going to see a high interest rate environment uh, at least until middle of this year. And we desperately need an interest rate cut here in Hong Kong, don't we? The PMI data once again showing that private sector growth has, has gone and stalled again. Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, the Hong Kong, uh, uh, you know, the, the high interest rates is killing the uh, investment appetite for the past twelve months. Uh, that that's a definite uh, thing. So, the, lowering the uh, the uh, the uh, deposit rate, it, it's going to help the the, this, the investment appetite. Uh, somewhat different from China. I mean, China is is going on low interest rate at the moment. Uh, you put money in the bank, you basically don't get uh, anything in return. Uh, but still, people are not willing to spend. Um, so I think it's going to help Hong Kong. But the good thing for the China is if they can see the uh, rate cut uh, roadmap for US, it will be given them, you know, given the government maybe a little bit more room to, uh, to uh, you know, give the market a, a further push on the monetary policy. Uh, because the major task for China right now is to curb the outflows on investments, on on, on you know, on, the, on spendings, on, on anything. They just want to keep the cash uh, people's cash within the country. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's affecting uh, the entire financial uh, 
you know, uh, um, uh, uh, sectors, uh, you know, the, the financial players, uh, the, the Chinese financial players, basically, whether it's a bank or securities brokers. Mark, final word to you. The Hong Kong economy, the PMI, pretty well stalled, 49 points, um, nine. Once again, um, we just can't seem to get any traction here, can we? No, it, it's true. And of course, we're going to, at the end of this month, the financial secretary is going to introduce his budget. Mm. And so he hasn't been exactly real upbeat on the prospects for the Hong Kong economy recently. And I think the government's going to have to consider if they're going to try to take measures but taking those measures are going to be restricted because they have a significant deficit, mm. which is something that Hong Kong is not used to having uh, for many, for many years, and and it has to operate within that. Plus the uncertain prospects geopolitically and and in other areas that we've just discussed. So this is going to be, I think, one of the more interesting budgets. Okay, well, thank you all very much for your thoughts this morning. You heard there Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Frederick Chu, who's managing director at Magnum Research, and Barry Wood, who's our US economics correspondent based over in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. I'll be back tomorrow with more business and finance headlines. And to discuss them, I'll be joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, our regular Wednesday correspondent, and also William Marr, who is Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group. Please subscribe to my daily newsletter, which contains updates on business and finance news from the Asia-Pacific region and affecting Asia. You'll find it at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.